Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Ryan Weiss. Ryan has published programming and architecture books, been awarded Microsoft MVP, and frequently talks at conferences and user groups. He started Vice Software six years ago and has grown to over 40 developers and continues to grow 50% year over year. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, y'all. How y'all doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so before we uh, jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners like an introduction to yourself? You know, perhaps uh, tell them how you got started in the industry. Sure. I've been um, working professionally in software for 21-ish years now. Um, I got my start just graduating graduating out of a CS uh, math degree. I graduated straight into the um, 2020 economic calamity. Uh, So it was a pretty... um, Pretty interesting time. I, I mean, my wife and I were pretty, uh, pretty new to kind of where we were in, in our whole thing. We were getting ready to get married and all of that. And um, I, I thought that we were making so much money. I was like, man, we might need a prenup. <laughs> and, and that was a, a, clearly a huge mistake. And, uh, you know, something that was a very embarrassing now for me to talk about, because uh, like, wasn't even six months later, and like the whole economy <laughs> crashed. And like, I was, um, unemployed and um i spent the next four years getting laid off in the second week of january um which was you know quite a quite a ride you know you go through all the school and you're thinking you'd get out and it's gonna be awesome and uh, all that and uh it was kind of awesome for six months or eight months and then you get laid off and then be depressed again all this uh so that happened for about four years and that's actually what got me started in consulting once i switched to consulting it felt better because like contracts in it's not like you have to have you know you know, the emotional ride of getting laid off and that kind of stuff. Um, and I had actually switched to .NET at that time because .NET was, um, pardon me, brand new. I was doing C++ and C++, you'd go up against developers with, you know, 10, 20 years of experience pretty easily. And I only had four years in the market. So uh, .NET had just came out and I figured, you know, if I do this uh, for a year, I'll have, uh, you know, almost max experience. Um, so I switched my career and that worked out pretty good. Um, and then once I switched into .NET, when I got laid off year after year, I noticed that there was always a few people in every project who didn't seem like they would get laid off and seemed like they had a lot of autonomy at work and that the politics didn't matter. And they were usually really good at, um, at the code and do the business really well, stuff like that. And so I put my eye on that as a goal. And like, if I get good enough at this stuff, uh, you know, that'll give me job security, you know, cause I'm not getting job security any other way right now. Uh, so that had me really focusing on kind of uh, leveling up, continuous improvement, that kind of stuff. And then uh, that's where I got into the um, community side of the .NET um, organization. And that's, um, I just did a lot of stuff like users groups and uh, answering questions on the blogs, that kind of, or um, the support groups and all that. Um, and um, that ended up leading me to getting into the uh, MVP award circle, uh, which led to kind of my first book deal, which was on um uh, model view view model pattern with uh, WPF and Silverlight. I was smart enough to uh, to decide to 
do that when I was working at Schwab on a contract that had mandatory 50 hour weeks. And um, my wife and I had just had our second child. So I can confidently say that without having a wife like mine, <laughs> this would have been possible. Um, so uh, she basically supported me on, um, on being able to just work all the time. And then on the weekends, work on this book that took a year and a half to get done. That led me to managing offshore teams at Dell and places like that, um, large enterprise companies in Austin, which is not really what I anticipated. And I, I, at that time, everybody was trying to do teams out of India. And um, my first assignment at Dell, I had two teams, one of 30 and one of six to try and manage out of India. Not the most senior of folks. And I only had about two hours a day between the two teams to collaborate with people. It was pretty much a nightmare. Um, it was extremely difficult um, to kind of create value and be productive. I had three projects in a row where that same thing happened. I'm just like managing these offshore teams. And I didn't really understand why they kept, you know, why are y'all doing this to me? Why do I keep having to do this? It just doesn't work. Until I met my business partner, Prashanth. Um, we met uh, at a, doing predictive analysis software in the medical space. And when I met him, um, it all just worked really well. And then I saw the that for all of the negative attributes about the model, there was clearly some really uh, nice positive attributes, which is what the large companies are going for. They have the um, they have the budget and all that to support having a expensive onshore uh, developer who they can pay full time to work with a you know pretty good offshore developer to help build a team. Uh, when you finally get that right and get it going, it ends up being um, it ends up being very attractive as far as being affordable. Uh, Prashant and I, um, we both saw that with both entrepreneurial and then we decided, hey, let's take this on the road and sell it to mid small size companies uh, who can't afford to set up on it because it's just too difficult. You know, and that's what got me into the entrepreneurial stuff. Three years of fake it till you make it. Then we got sustainable after uh, three years, uh, like in the fourth year. And then we've been on growth for the last two to three. And that's kind of the journey so far. So what's uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that's the you're talking about starting a vice software. Yeah, correct. What what's uh what's a daily experience? What's a day to day sort of uh, experience for you uh, now that you've been doing it for six years? Yeah. So in the last year and a half, two years, um, I've gotten to the point where I hardly code at all. Um, and that was honestly something that was terrifying for me. Um, I am currently like I still take on. I take on things that are architectural in nature and that don't have a heavy timeline. Like I, I still write our boilerplates. And then um, if our um, stakeholders or architects want to talk about high level architecture, if the team needs uh, help brainstorming, I'll do that. But as far as my day to day activities now, um, I've actually finally gotten into a good flow with like uh, task management and communications, which I know that sounds really silly. But when you're like an individual contributor and you're like working on one product or one project, you come to work and you have a pretty good idea of what you're working on, you know, grab the next ticket off the backlog, whatever. Um, but now we've got 10 active projects with 40 developers and all that kind of stuff. I'm responsible for sales, um, marketing, business development, technology vision, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so with that many different projects and areas of responsibility, I've had to get really good at, um, or at least good enough at task management. And um, I was having a really hard time keeping up with my emails because um, just keeping up with Slack can kind of take your whole day. And I know Slack is active current clients, um, but 
and an email has such a bad signal to noise. So now my flow is I wake up and I go through my task in my emails. Um, I use this new email program I really like that uh, kind of helps get the email box sorted to like emails that are actually to you um, versus uh, newsletters and um, notifications and that kind of stuff. So you can kind of know where to look for stuff. And so um, I'll get through my emails, update my task list. So I have my task list ordered for that day of what I need to do. And then I just throughout the day work through the task list. Um, I'll generally check in with uh, the team in the US and in uh, Mexico uh, throughout the day and see how they're doing. Uh, some days um, I've got some clients in town and I'll pop over and we do this thing where we get with the clients and just kind of use the app. And Austin has a lot of great casual food. So I always show up with like, <laughs> barbecue or tacos or uh you know some some other kind of um you know bribery <laughs> that's most days is really just getting that task list organized uh and then kind of having that take me through it most days i have to do a couple of pr things for a pr team filling out different requests for this or requests for that that they find um most days, I generally will have some conversation with our uh, accountant type person. We have like a CFO, um, fractional CFO, essentially. Um, and then that's generally it. We don't have a ton of fires to put out these days, um, fortunately. So um, that's all good. And currently, we're I'm working on trying to get the... Uh, I'm trying to get it to where I don't have a lot to do during the day so that I can focus more on biz dev. Uh, so we just hired a product owner um, and we just hired a QA, uh, which would help with some of the stuff that I've been kind of wearing the hat. So. And you mentioned being in the Austin area, which it seems to be the the new Silicon Valley. It seems like a lot of companies are leaving the the high rent districts in, in California and, and migrating to the new trendy uh, renewed Austin so do you do you find that you're competing with those that that maybe offer the uh the the free snacks and, and beer at work and the foosball tables and that type of thing? Or or what differentiates you or what are you finding makes a successful uh IT uh programming development software consulting company these days? So our differentiator that we try to go for is um we took two sides of the engineering triangle, you know, good, cheap, fast. Um, and we decided that we would optimize for, you know, it's the whole joke is pick two. So we did, and we picked, um, we picked, um, good and cheap. And I don't think a lot of folks are doing that. And so our philosophy is that most deadlines aren't real. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? They really aren't. And so most of the time deadlines are created to make the teams kind of, you know, have a goal and kind of hustle. Uh, we do have occasionally, um, you know, uh, the uh, beginning of the insurance season or the school season, or there's some kind of real deadline. And if that happens, we can do that. But our whole process aligns around the concept that uh, most people would rather know that it's going to cost X, it's going to take Y, I mean, it's going to cost X. It's going to be good when you get it. And it'll take like three to four months. You know what I mean? As opposed to um, it's going to take exactly uh, seven weeks, but we don't know exactly what it's going to cost, which I feel like that's the trade-off, you know, or, you know, we can make sure it costs a certain amount and it takes a certain amount, but um, it's not going to be the best quality, you know? Um, 
So that's kind of what we've optimized around as far as being competitive in the Austin market. So far, it seems like we're doing pretty good. I have a pretty highly distributed team. So um, my number two guy here in Austin, uh, is his name's Misha, which sounds like he's Eastern European, but he's not. He's actually like Texas. He's probably been in Austin longer than I have. Um, and he's a guy that um, one of my buddies, he teaches um, computer science for high school, like as a like, kind of just self-actualizing middle age kind of thing to do, you know, like some guys buy sports cars and this is what, you know, my friend Daryl decided to do. And uh, he's awesome. He's got, he's like super old school um, computer geek, got a signed picture of Jean-Luc Picard on his desk, that kind of stuff. And so um, he told me like that he wor was working, teaching this kid in high school who was something special. Um, or he actually told this group, I'm in Los Techies about that. And so I was like, yeah, I wouldn't mind talking to him. And so I, I've been fortunate enough to have Misha working with me for the last two years. Um, I think he likes um, having, we have some pretty big name clients uh, but we're still a very small casual agency. And so I think he likes that aspect of it. And him and I go out for nice lunches, like kind of every few weeks or so. And then we just hired a QA guy who's out here in um, Austin as well. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that there's some folks out there that, um, you know, aren't looking only for like the biggest possible salary you can get, you know, and going to these uh, large companies and, you know, not having a huge impact. Like with the team that I work with, you're talking to, um, decision makers and CEOs uh, and helping them make like pretty key decisions about their products and, and things like that. So, so we hope that makes it interesting. You know? Yeah. And before hitting record, I think we were, we were talking about the fact that, you know, a lot of the, the problems that we solve are, are a little repetitive at times. Like I I've joked, I've been in the industry 20 plus years and, and I've written the same uh, forms over data application what hundreds of times in in the last 20 years so it it seems like once we get a a solid understanding under our belts and and know how to program and know the types of problems we're likely to encounter and and likely hired to solve the the challenge really isn't the the software at that point is it yeah so so what are you finding challenging these days in in software is it is it around getting requirements? Is it around estimation? What, what do you what do you think the 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 key is? Yeah. So for us, the challenge right now is basically post MVP quality and um, pivots. So our current process, the short version of it, if you're going to sell software to you know any anyone off, if uh, John or Clayton came to me. Um, and said, hey, man, you know, I, I want to build this app or, or whatever it is. No one is going to sign a contract if you don't tell them how much it's going to cost. You know, it's just the nature of the game. Um, I joke with um, uh, people in my CTO network group all the time. If you want to, you know, they'll say, like, how do you get your developers to estimate accurately? And I'm like, well, you know, when it started costing me money, I got better at it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a pretty true statement. Like, it, you know, if if when you get it wrong, it costs you money, um, you'll, you'll get better at it. And so we decided early on, I told Prashan that we're going to win or lose every project when we sign contracts, right? Um, the way we build the software, everything else we do is going to be exactly the same. The only thing that's going to make um, success or failure in the eyes of the folks that we signed a contract with is, is uh, kind of what was in the contract. And the most important thing usually being the estimate. There are some other things I've learned over time. Um, and so when we estimate, 
Um, I feel like the only way you can come up with an accurate estimate is waterfall. So I actually wrote a blog post that said the secret to software estimation is in a dirty word, like this uh, clickbait title. The punchline was waterfall, you know? And so we, we, we created this lean version of waterfall that we use where we do two short phases of discovery that go really fast and, and don't cost a ton of money with this partner that we have here in town. Um, once that's done, then I get with the um, whoever the senior technical person on their side is, and we do like an entity diagram. We come up with a specification, and we feel that that's 85% of the picture there, right? Uh, you can't do 100%. Everybody knows waterfall, the problems of it, and all that kind of stuff, and it's way too much upfront planning, but uh, we actually do it with five, oh, 25 to about 40 plus, 10, like 50, so 25 to 50 hours. Uh, which our partner charges $75 an hour. So it's not a lot of money to get to where you have a development specification. And then I'll do the entity diagram. And then Prashant and I, we finish everything off. Uh, Prashant is my business partner. You get a loaded JIRA with all your tickets and they match this uh, the specification. And so it's been a nice lean process for us. And when we first got started, if you start a software agency, most likely your beginning clients are going to be small uh, startups that are trying to get their first product out. I mean, those are the jobs you can get and so for the first X number of years, we helped a lot of people build products that were not successful in the market. Uh, it's the nature of it. Most of these things fail. Uh, we can't pick the winners, that's for sure. I've seen some things that seem like fantastic ideas that we got really excited about and they just never took off in the market. Uh, so we hadn't really developed our post-launch uh, game as much as the to MVP. Um, so we're really good at helping folks um, get out of software development and actually know how much money they're going to spend and get an opportunity to sell on the market. Um, so now um, when we do that waterfall approach, we pad 20% for doing scrum throughout. So we waterfall to estimate, we run scrum in the middle, and then we provide a 20% pad for the evolutions of agile. Um, and then the budget should respect that unless people just really keep changing their mind a ton, which can happen. Um, so now what we've been trying to do is tighten down the other piece of it. Um, I had been wearing the product hat and the QA, like I was saying, and like, you know, go visit the clients and sit down and bring some barbecue and like, you know, let's bang on this thing and see if we can, um, if, it, if it, it, let's see if we like it. And let's also let's find all the crazy stuff that the dev team has done, you know, as far as like start dates that can be after end dates and things like that. Um, and so um, through that, I've realized you know, we need to beef up our QA and we need to beef up our product offering. Uh, and so that's what we've been focusing on now. Uh, so I've hired, my theory is that if we have those folks uh, in the time zone overlap, it's super valuable. So now our future state team that we're working on right now would have one developer from the Americas. Currently, I'm working on building a team out of Guadalajara. So we'll have one developer from um, that team, um, a piece of a QA, a piece of a product owner, um, and a piece of a U.S. architect. So the most uh, expensive uh, U.S. time zone assets shared over the projects. And then we'll augment that with like two to four developers in Mexico. So that's the, uh, that's the formula that we're working on. <laughs> you had mentioned the, that estimation was just one of the elements to uh, some of the successfully completed like one contracts that you, the winning contracts that you, you kind of were creating. What are, what are some of those other elements? What I found is again, like success or failure is always at contract time, in my opinion. And knowing what to ask for, which is really what your contract is, is like, this is what we're asking for, um, can go a long ways. So we have two 
key values that we build our company on. Um, and they're really different than other companies' values because uh, we've focused super heavily on the client experience um, and our team is offshore. So a lot of companies in the U.S. will have values that focus much more on kind of the work environment and things like that, which I'm sure we'll probably need to evolve some of that stuff pretty soon as we start building up the U.S. presence. But um, our two key values are um, that clients only pay invoices they're comfortable with um, and that we never give anything away for free. <laughs> so the outcome of those two things is that you're dog fooding on your invoices. So if people see something they don't like, you're like, okay, that seems like, you know, they're like, what is this? You know, this shouldn't have taken that long. It cost it. You say, well, what, what do you think it should have been? You know, that's pretty much what the conversation is. We don't give anything away for free, but we're giving stuff away for free there. Well, what we get out of that is we get process and contract tweaks, right? So every time that we have to comp something to someone, it's like a restaurant model. You know, we, we took too long to get your food out. So we can give you dessert or whatever. Every time that happens, um, we change our processes and we change our contracts. And so we've added different clauses. So for now, so now, for example, um, we take deposits that cover the billing uh, cycle of the, um, so if, if you have a net 15, uh, we buy monthly billing with net 15. That means we're putting 30 days of time on our credit card, essentially. Um, so we require you to pay that 30 days up front. Um, and then that will definitely make the conversations about the invoices a little bit more approachable, you know, so we'll be more than happy to talk about the invoices. Uh, but it's, it's more about like how much of that money we're giving back to you or whatever. We've also put some things in there. You know, we, we know how to, we don't do unlimited indemnity clauses anymore. <laughs> so, uh, no particular negative experience there, but, um, we like to structure the indemnity so it'll protect our clients, but we like to structure that in a way that has expirations on it. Uh, and that is covered by insurance. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, you know, we want to make sure that if something goes wrong on your project, you know, if you, if you want to make sure that your coverage is 2 million, let us know. We'll have $2 million contract. We'll have a $2 million coverage there. And for anything that pops up a year after we, uh, we do the project, you know, we'll be more than happy to settle that with you, but you know, we want the right to use our insurance uh, you know, if we do have a uh, settlement, we want to make sure that we get a non-disparagement agreement and a release from future liability, just all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And it, it sounds like you're, you're really looking to minimize waste. You're, you're trimming the fat. You're making sure that what you're delivering is what the client is asking for and, and you know, no more, no less so that they're, they're getting a good deal. You're getting a good, you're, you're getting a good healthy margin on that so that you can remain in business. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty much the game. And um, we, we've been able to distill this stuff down pretty, um, pretty much over the years as far as the pitch is concerned. And so we describe it that, um, you know, we make it affordable and predictable by being smart about teams, tools, process, and features. Um, and so team, you know, we distribute and um, spread out the more expensive resources so you can save money there. Tools. Um, so I might lose some of you on this one. We love JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so javascript has been our number it's our excalibur um we were able to do so much with such a small team um and we're able to be super flexible with our team because everyone is a mobile developer everyone's a back-end developer and you know um whether you're clever and share code or not strategically it's huge or it has been for us we do projects in other technologies as well but when, when we pick we do javascript um, when it comes to process, I've kind of already touched on that a little bit. And then the feature piece is, um, you know, I always use home analogies when I talk about what we do. And, um, 
you know, if you watch the home shows, uh, the houses that <laughs> the must have wish list when they see the actual house, it's the must have. They're always like, okay, well, what else do you have when they see the price tag? Right. Uh, so, um, it's the same thing with software, as you guys all know. Um, let's not build a bunch of fancy stuff. Let's just, let's get something out there that's nice and, and kind of handles the, um, the minimal requirements, get some users on it. And then, you know, we, we can try and figure out what to do with it next. You know, um, a lot of, um, we have a lot of people come to us and they really think that like, just build it. Like, let's just do everything under the sun and then we'll put it out there with no marketing budget and it's going to go viral and we're going to be billionaires. <laughs> We haven't seen that happen very often. <laughs> so, so on that, even if, so let's say you've, um, you've kind of like scoped down the project to remove the unnecessary stuff and, uh, you've got all that other stuff figured out. Um, a lot of people would say that programming is an art. So how do you account in your estimation for the Picasso that I'm going to write when you give me the requirements? Right. Yeah. So we don't hire guys who show up like, raise on and all that I'm, I'm totally joking but like but like uh no the art side of it like i am completely invested in that like uh as far as understanding and appreciating it i've been guilty of like writing uh one-way data flows using like um like rxjs on holiday and uh and um costa rica while my family's still asleep and stuff so I definitely appreciate that misha and i when we interview we look for the real geeks we ask about hobbies and things like that but when it comes to the actual software projects themselves, um, we discourage folks from being creative about things that are well-established. Uh, you know, if you can Google it and there's smart people uh, or just people like me who spend their holidays like noodling around on code and then blogging about it, let's just kind of take advantage of those ideas because we're using someone else's budget to do this. You know, if you want to have fun and figure out different ways of doing moving data to and from the database, you know, that's what open source and weekends are for. Um, and then on our projects, when we estimate, um, we have um, a few padding buckets. I already mentioned the one around kind of the agile iterations. Um, what we do is we break all the tasks down. Everything is going to be between, um, it's a morning, it's a half a day, it's a day, it's a day and a half. Like So you're going two hours to 16 hours for most line items. We'll have a couple 24s, and then there might be a few that are like, like we did one recently where we had to do temper evidence storage. So you could tell if a document had been modified for 20 years. I don't know how to do that. I mean, that's not something that we've all done a million times. So for that, what we did is we broke it into, we said, okay, we'll say that's 160 hours. 40 hours of it is a spike that we'll do in the first sprint. And the other 120 hours is the maybe, right? Um, and so then we do that 40 hours spike in the first sprint. That's where I come off the bench and kind of actually get, get my hands dirty and get to have a little fun. Um, and then we'll kind of recircle back around and say, okay, yeah, that 120 was correct or it wasn't correct. Um, we had, um, because we estimate in ideal hours and we estimate so quickly using kind of that t-shirt size approach, we know that estimates can be wrong. And historically we found it's about 20% off. So what we do is every sprint, we load it to 80% capacity and that makes the math easy on that 20% there. Uh, and so then that allows, um, if you could imagine t-shirt size of stuff out, and then load your sprints to 80% with the dev teams you've worked with, you generally hit it. You know what I mean? Um, most, most of the time you'll hit it. And if you know the unknowns, if you're giving yourself a month of calendar time for that stuff, um, it's going to work out. And then the, the other piece that I'm, and, and again, with that type of work, I'm always available to do that work. Um, now Misha does a lot of that work for me. 
And I don't mind if anybody wants to kind of step up and try and do that kind of work, but they need to be quick with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and, and they need to be like good at collaborating and that kind of stuff. So we like to have that opportunity for most folks, but we found that um, we've built a culture with our offshore team where they really like being productive and they've gotten used to the idea that like we have these established ways of doing things. So we just haven't had a lot of um, challenges with folks not feeling like they have enough ability to be creative and the folks that are um, offshore who are most successful, they tend to, the skill set they tend to bring is kind of uh, the doer kind of skill set across multiple projects. Like those folks are all better than me at um, figuring out how to get an annoying API or SDK to work. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, so on the the topic of those out of out of um, or offshore teams building those, uh, you had mentioned that you had sort of had several goes of of that uh, in what was it Dell or or yeah working with them and and um, you struggled and I would say that that's sort of my experience uh, as well and I think uh, many other people uh, have. Have, a, have had similars, but obviously there's success to be had there. And you seem to have found, found that. So what do you think are some of the key uh, sort of pillars of what has brought, has, has, that you've been able to sort of employ to make this successful? So our team, um, the thing they do really well is really high velocity forms over dev type development. Um, and what we do is we start with um, boilerplates that I create and that that I create the boilerplates and I go to conference, uh, meetups and stuff like that. And I show to people and say, Hey, what do y'all think? You know, and kind of really kind of test it out in the dev market a little bit. I give it to the team. I get them to get their opinions on it. Once it feels like it's really good. Um, they focus on developer ergonomics. Um, we use those and everyone just follows those patterns. And then the way the teams are structured is really important. We interview, um, developers and then because, um, we're working with us clients, there's a differentiator around how good someone's communication skills is, but there's a lot of folks, even in the States, who are fantastic programmers, but maybe not the most um, sharpest when it comes to communication and talking to like clients or having difficult conversations. So we um, we have our own ways of kind of figuring out which track those folks are in, and my partner Prashant has done a really good job of that. And so we figure out when people uh, code, uh, do they have the communication skills and things like that? Um, if they do have the communication skills, they become they have the opportunity to become one of our leads. Uh, our leads are highly incentivized. Uh, we, you know, kind of break even or take a loss on most of those folks, um, and they um, they will lead one or more teams. Whenever you engage with us, you only communicate with your lead. And trust me, that's what you want. Like I said, when I was at Dell, it was a nightmare because I had thirty six people, and I, I very quickly got to where I was like, look, y'all pick one person, and that's who I talk to in the morning. You'll get all your updates. We've only got an hour to get through this stuff, you know? And so it's it's really the best way to do it just because of the time zone overlap and all that. And But it's also given us a, a lot of flexibility. Um, we can pretty easily hire about four devs a month. Um, and we run a bench because we're coming out of India. There's a cost advantage there. Um, so we run a bench all the time. And so what it means is that if you get a team of three or four developers, you're just interacting with the lead and with me or Misha or someone in the US. Um, you don't know who's doing the work. It could be actually five developers doing your work to get that capacity where it needs to be, or it could be three. It could be anywhere in there. And uh, we can ramp new folks in. And these lead developers are, again, highly incentivized to make sure that when the work um, when the work is done, if, the, if it's over the estimate, 
they will kind of talk to the developer and be like, what was going on here? If it's a reasonable reason, then it is what it is. If it's not a reasonable reason, then we will cut those hours back. Uh, so generally speaking, when someone first gets ramped, um, they might be billing at like 12 hours a week, 16, 24, et cetera, before they get up to 40. Um, and we'll ramp them up. And and having this particular model has been really advantageous to us because the Indian market is also super competitive. But what we can do is we hire folks who are early in their career. It works better for our model because again, like if we meet people who want to learn good ways of building software and like want to work with people who had had good outcomes, you know, they're on the lower end of their career. If we get more senior folks, they're going to come in and they're going to want to like, no, let's do it like this. Let's and they start arguing about, you know, tabs versus spaces and all this kind of stuff. So, and so we get the more junior folks, they're more, um, they're more cost competitive because they're early in their career. So we can pay them higher than market, which gives us a longer, um, a longer road um, that they will travel with us. And we kind of know how those folks appreciate off. So generally speaking, our ICs who don't have the communication are eventually going to want to move on to a multinational, you know, so maybe we get them for two years or something like that. But we constantly have new folks coming in, uh, and our leads are super stable. Um, so it's uh, um, it's it's much more like I had mentioned before the call. It's much more of a we're kind of doing more of a um, a factory kind of approach to it, where you know these are the pieces that make the software come through the system in, in a good way, and uh, we can scale it up. And so that's uh, that's how we've been hitting it. Uh, has is there anything that has been helpful in your career that uh, you might share with? someone who's maybe just getting started or someone who's looking to level up their own career? Probably the biggest thing for me that helped me kind of pick up my own career. I mean, I guess it might've been two things, but the the bigger one was probably the second of the two. The first one was just trying to get good at what I was doing, you know? And I think I, you know, accomplished some level of success in that, but then that ended up having a negative, um, a negative side to it because, um, I hadn't really focused on or appreciated the value of um, communication, relationships, and all of that side of it. I was so focused on technology that I just wanted to have the most clean, elegant solutions and know the latest stuff and be, you know, more read and all that and just being able to share all this knowledge and all that. But at the end of the day, if people don't like you, (laughs) they're not going to, they're not, they're not even going to listen to your ideas. So they'll have zero chance of getting there. So just appreciating the fact that um, software is a people game, uh, you really have to make sure that the the people that you're working with, you know, respect re- respect and understand the skills that you're bringing to the table, but that you're presenting it in a likable way, uh, so that so that it can actually land on on some folks, you know, because there's a lot of people out there with good ideas, a lot of people out there who are, are working hard and uh, you know sh- sharing good knowledge, and so I think if you really want to shine, I think it's about having good ideas, uh, but also having good relationships. You know, um, I actually, <laughs> I, one of the most valuable things to me is I did Sandler training with this one consulting company I was with, which Sandler training is all about uh, communication and improving your communication skills. And it was amazingly invaluable. Um, before that, I just kind of felt like we're all Vulcans, you know, <laughs> as programmers. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we all like it when people keep it, uh, keep it short and direct and just kind of, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you know, um, you know what is this? This is this is terrible. No, that's not. You know, uh, but apparently that's not. Um, not everyone's a Vulcan. <laughs> so, so understanding that you know, um, different folks have um, different journeys, 
uh, you know, appreciating that if you get into a code base and you're standing in like a humongous building and the, uh, the name of the software that you're looking at is on the building outside, you know, um, it's probably not appropriate to make fun of the coach because you know you haven't written any code that has resulted in a huge building with a, a neon sign on it downtown. So, uh, so you know, have a little respect for the um, for the fact that to get code to that size is um, is an impressive feat, and that you know the, the artist side of it, the craft side of it, is a skill that we can t help improve those things. But you know, the whole code mocking thing is probably not um, super wise. <laughs> I've been guilty. <laughs> so uh, where, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with uh, what you're working on? So um, I've tried to get better about sharing on social media. Um, we, have a, we have a Facebook page for Vice Software. I'll share this blog post there. So I think it's just Vice Software, but if you just search Vice Software on Facebook, it'll come up, I'm sure. Um, Vice Software on LinkedIn. Um, and then I'm Ryan Vice One on Twitter. I'm not terribly active on Twitter. I, I never... Never caught the bug for some reason. And if you just want to chat, you can come to vicesoftware.com and there's a message bubble that pops up. And if you go through the little prompts, it'll shoot a message straight to me and uh, I'll be more than happy to chat with anyone. So, Well, Ryan, this has been great. Uh, we, I feel like we could probably keep going and, and keep talking all night long, but I uh, want to be respectful of your time. You know, wanted to say uh, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you coming on the show. I super appreciate the invite and uh, it was great meeting you. Uh, Clayton and um, the other John. I'm assuming that's why they call you Ash. Yeah. <laughs> it's because he spells his name wrong. Yeah. 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 No, isn't that like um, John Snow style, right? I, th I think so. Yeah. 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 yeah that's definitely, definitely hardcore. <laughs> that was Ryan Weiss. Ryan has published programming and architecture books, been awarded Microsoft MVP, and frequently talks at conferences and user groups. He started Vice Software six years ago and has grown to over 40 developers and continues to grow 50% year over year. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach your potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 